If you were in English class and you said this, shall I compare thee, Jesus, to a summer's day? It's pretty likely people would look at you really funny. 125 years ago, though, there were people who'd hear that and they wouldn't bat an eye. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. That passage I just read, putting Jesus in the middle of Sonnet 18, is a paraphrase from a book called Shakespeare in the Bible, 50 Sonnets with their scriptural harmonies. Its author was named Charles Ellis, and it came out in 1896, squarely in the time we call the Victorian era. What Ellis actually wrote was that Sonnet 18 tells us, Shakespeare trusts in the constancy and all-sufficiency of Christ for all good in this life and in that life which is to come. Ellis is an example, and not a radical one, of one way Shakespeare was read in the late 19th century. It was a simple task to find books with titles like Bible Truths with Shakespearean Parallels, Shakespeare and Holy Writ, Sacred and Shakespearean Affinities, being analogies between the writings of the psalmists and of Shakespeare. They took Shakespeare passages, placed them side by side with the Bible, and drew parallels that placed Shakespeare next to God. Preachers in the era did this too. This seems like an odd pairing in the 21st century. It would have probably seemed like an odd pairing in the 16th century and the 17th. But as you'll hear, by the end of the 19th century, it was considered absolutely conventional. That was a different time, and in his new book, The Victorian Cult of Shakespeare, Bardology in the 19th Century, Charles Laporte offers us a window into it. Dr. Laporte is an associate professor of English at the University of Washington, and his book gives us a new understanding of the Victorians and arguably a new understanding of Shakespeare. He joined us to talk about all this recently for a podcast we call I Am No Thing to Thank God On. Charles Laporte is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, Shakespeare has such a vaunted reputation now uh, that it's not that unusual for people to say something like Shakespeare and the Bible seem unable to escape each other, which is a quote from your book. But that's definitely not how people felt in the early 1700s. And you say for the Victorians that that became a tenet. So remind us, where are we starting? Shakespeare was considered what in the early 1700s? In in the early 1700s, Shakespeare was considered a very good playwright. Shakespeare's works were always being performed. Uh, They were often being freely adapted by the end of the 19th century that would be a sort of act of iconoclasm, almost. He was a good playwright. And my book is about the the next hundred years when he goes from being a good playwright to being sort of the god of English literature. So he was good, but just not extraordinary. He was a playwright among playwrights, and, and people looked yeah, to precisely. David Garrett yeah. and say, oh, they, they, he made, this is the moment when, when Shakespeare happened. And uh, although because he's still seen as a playwright, People recognized the bodiness, and his work was considered base, like like any other theater theatrical work. Scholars looking back, by which I mean 20th century scholars and then 21st century scholars, noticing that Shakespeare at the beginning of the 18th century is just another very good playwright, and 
in the 19th century, he becomes seen as a, a real religious influence. Scholars looking back look back and say, so when does this happen? And they settle upon sort of David Garrick's Jubilee of 1769 and say, you know, this is really the moment where Garrick hypes up Shakespeare for his own sort of commercial reasons, gets this ball rolling. And broadly speaking, it's true that it's in the second half, really after in the 1770s and following, that Shakespeare tends to be regarded in loftier and loftier terms. But part of the point of my book is that what happens at the end of the 18th century is in a lot of ways sort of qualitatively different. Right. And you pretty much describe it as a 180 when we get to the Victorians. Can you give us some examples of how, just how definitive these expressions of Shakespeare's godlikeness or near divinity are? I would differentiate between sort of expressions of Shakespeare as a divine artist and practice in the Victorian world. Because the expressions, by the time you're in the early years of the 19th century, you've got lots of expressions of, of Shakespeare's divinity. You have people like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet, saying that Shakespeare is rather to be looked upon as a prophet than a poet. You have Thomas de Quincey in the famous essay that he writes on the knocking of the gate in Macbeth, where he says, you know, O mighty poet, thy works are not as those of other men, where they're really saying, you know, Shakespeare is special and very different. In the 19th century, over the course of the 19th century, you increasingly see Shakespeare used in sermons delivered by Christian ministers from their pulpits. And part of the thesis of my book is that this is a different sort of investment in the idea of Shakespeare as a sort of a religious figure. You see books emerge that have quotations from Shakespeare on one side and quotations from the Bible on the other. But the thesis of my book is that when you're looking at this practice or these kinds of practices, you notice that what the Victorians are doing is simply different from romantic hyperbole. Does that make sense? Yes. It sounds like it's qualitatively different and, and that they're kind of making Shakespeare into a god in a very nuts and bolts way. Exactly. Um, precisely. And, and yeah. I'm fascinated by these devotional books, but I want to ask you about the preachers first. Um, this idea that preachers were jumping on, on the bandwagon and, and quoting Shakespeare in their sermons, because you describe it as the clergy predicting that believers would soon celebrate Shakespeare's inspiration across the Christian churches. That's a quote from your book. So why did preachers believe this was going to happen? What was this prediction based on? Yeah, great question. And it's a little bit complicated. The short answer is that Shakespeare's status as a source of religious insight was such that it was perfectly reasonable for Christian preachers in, in various denominations to say, uh, hey, you know, Shakespeare should really be recognized by us as a religious authority. At the end of the 19th century, you have one of Queen Victoria's own chaplains arguing that Shakespeare needs to be recognized as a divine source of wisdom. That's really interesting. And that's not something that you would have seen in David Garrick's generation or Coleridge's generation. Like it's that kind of endorsement by the clergy is a remarkable sort of historical happenstance to my eyes. Okay, I have a lot of questions about this. What did preachers do with the body bits? Just ignore them? Yeah, it's really interesting because we look at Shakespeare and we're like, how could you possibly go there? But it must be said, there's lots of 
sex and violence in the Bible as well, right? So they had some practice, <laughs> right? It's not, it's, it's interesting to us to see them pick up something like the sonnets and say, you know, this is really a religious revelation. You know, that raises an eyebrow for us. But it's also true that that's sort of how sacred hermeneutics works. If you look at like the Song of Songs in the Bible, we know now, and indeed in the 19th century they knew already, that it was sort of a late addition to the sacred canon. Mm -hmm. That you have people like the Rabbi Akiba in the first century saying this is really a central text where he has to make the argument for its centrality. Okay, here, here's my question, and I'm, I don't mean this facetiously, but preachers follow trends too. You know, <laughs> sure. I mean, was Shakespeare yeah. a convenient tool to use as inspiration or to, to fill out a sermon and keep parishioners no, in the so, seats? But that's what's so interesting, because that would be true if if what I meant by Shakespeare sermons were simply like you're giving a sermon and you've said everything that you can say about the Gospel of John, so now you're going to spice it up with measure for measure, right? <laughs> right. That, that, that would be one thing. But when I say that they were writing... Shakespearean sermons. What I mean is that they were taking the Shakespearean text as their sacred text. I mean, mm. where, where a, a you know preacher in Seattle would say, "Look, you know, I take my text from measure for measure," and that's what's extraordinary. And also, not just extraordinary, but also a, a religious movement that we, in retrospect, find. I mean, we can't not find it a little bit weird that they did this with Shakespeare. Although, as you began by saying, our opinion of Shakespeare could hardly be higher. That's true. I guess I was picturing it like a Victorian equivalent of Christian rock or the minister who plays guitar and, you know, wears leather pants or something and sings Christian inflected yes. pop songs. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's right to an extent, but I think it's also true that they were really making the case, right? Someone like C.W. Stubbs, in making the the argument that Shakespeare should be viewed as a sacred text is, it's an argument when he's giving sermons, he's saying, like, this is important, we should be doing this. Like, it really was a religious mission. I guess I don't know enough about Christian rock bands and what all to, to know. <laughs> oh, well, forget uh, <laughs> that, but why? What do preachers get at this time out of doing that? Why deify Shakespeare? I, I understand the question, but I guess for me, I believe that they were invested in the in the inspiration itself. In, in some ways, it's like saying, why do Christians talk about the Bible? They mm. talk about the Bible because they're persuaded of the importance and truth of the revelation. Mm. I mean, the same thing is true for Shakespeare. They were like, this is true. This is important. Let's listen to Shakespeare. Shakespeare is an inspired... And it must be said that, that it's not only Shakespeare who is... Uh, regarded in the 19th century as a divinely inspired poet. Like, you, you see something similar happening with, you know, William Wordsworth. You see something similar happening with Victor Hugo. You see something similar happening with Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Shakespeare's like the ne plus ultra example. He's the single most important poet in Anglophone culture in the 19th century by far. I pick up Shakespeare because he's, he's the main guy. Yeah, and you're really getting to a central point of, of your book that, and maybe I'm illustrating it by my line of questioning, but that back then religious ideas animated people's very frames of reference. And that's another quote from your book. And that that's so hard to understand. It's hard to get in that headspace of secular people 
living, living now. Um, and you cite a scholar named Hannibal Hanlon who has, first of all, a great name. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> he does. And he a, does. a great analogy for us, which is he wrote that, uh, you know, imagine if there was a TV show that everyone watched and your parents and grandparents had watched it and everyone in other countries watched it, too, with their own languages. And now imagine it was illegal not to watch it. And that's the Bible at that time. Right, right, precisely. And he's talking about the 16th and 17th century. So this is from, from Hamlin's book called The Bible and Shakespeare. It's a beautiful book. What he's doing is saying, if you want to understand Shakespeare's relationship to the Bible, you have to understand that it's pervasive. He, he, sa- he finishes that long metaphor by saying, it was always in reruns and it never went off the air, right? Which is, is so a, it's, it's beautiful. And it really gets to sort of the importance just the the pervasiveness of the Bible as as a medium for thought about everything, really. But part of the reason I love that quotation so very much is that he's talking about Shakespeare's own lifetime. And one of the points that I want to make in my book is that it's still true three centuries later, right? When you're looking at the mid-Victorian period, if you're not talking about Shakespeare, but you're talking about Charlotte Bronte, everything that he says in that quotation is still true, except that it's no longer illegal not to attend services, right? Right. So you're saying it just gives you this tremendous head start on understanding what's going on in with the Brontes, and you also write the, the Brownings or uh, Alfred right. Tennyson and Charles Dickens. Right. If you understand that the Bible is so very pervasive then you really have a huge head start in understanding what's going on in the 19th century, in the 1800s. So is the same thing going on simultaneously with the Romantic writers in America? And can you give us some examples? So I'm, I'm trained uh, as a Victorianist rather than as an Americanist, but there's no doubt that the Hannibal Hamlin's description is no less true of, you know, basically any 19th century American writer that you can name, you know, Emerson or Whitman or what have you. And the cultural importance of poetry as an expression of the divine is no less true in America. Unquestionably, that Walt Whitman, you know, reads Emerson's essay on the poet, you know, in which Emerson is saying, you know, really, this we need new revelations from poets. And, and Whitman, you know, writes Leaves of Grass, and he's like, here I am right? Where he was, he was very open about aspiring to a prophetic status. Okay. And here's another very 21st century question, though. How do we know that, for instance, when Elizabeth Barrett Browning says something like uh, that she believed reverently in the miracle of Shakespeare's poetic range, as you quote her in your book, how do we know she wasn't being metaphorical? Because obviously you can look at Barrett Browning's level of what we might call hyperbole and compare it to Coleridge at the beginning of the century and say, you know, it's really just the same thing. My feeling is, one, I've read a lot of Barrett Browning's works, and she was deeply invested in the idea that modern poetry is a new revelation. But the other is that, again, the reason why in my book I concentrate on things like Shakespeare's sermons or Shakespeare devotional books or the arguments of the Shakespeare societies and and how they intersect with theological discourses. The reason I do that is that it that's not hyperbole, right? I mean, this is like the Shakespearean bon mot that uh, action is eloquence, 
right? I mean, they're do, they're making things in in Victorian culture that mm-hmm. they don't make in earlier cultures. Those actions are are also eloquent, right? So b- when you look at Barrett Browning in that context, there's no reason not to take her seriously. We've skipped over a big shift, or maybe we're getting to it right now, uh, in thinking about Shakespeare as a playwright to thinking about him as a poet in this time. So could you explain that a little bit more? And who are the people doing this? Because there's still people going to see Shakespeare plays or parodies of Shakespeare plays or comedy that's based on Shakespeare plays. But there are people who are reading Shakespeare and thinking about him as this prophetic poet as opposed to playwright. So what is that? Is it class-based or is it scholars versus the hoi polloi? Or? I don't think it's... Uh, well, let me tell you what I do think it is. It's a, it's a scholarly commonplace that Shakespeare, people's investment in Shakespeare over the course of the 19th century sort of moves from the stage to the page. Obviously, it's still on the stage and uh, robust and growing over the course of the century. There's fabulous scholarship on this. But what happens is the discourse about poetry and the embrace of Shakespeare as a poet and as a poet as a sort of divine voice this discourse takes hold in the kind of pervasive way that I was talking about. And this is what makes, I think, Shakespeare's divine status is connected to these poetic discourses, if that makes sense. It's the, his presence on the stage doesn't, doesn't remove it, uh, and they exist sort of side by side. Well, this idea of Shakespeare as a poet, contributes, how does it contribute to your thesis about his rise to this level of of a godhead or of the divine? And you phrase it in this really provocative way, and you write that there's a vein of Victorian literary theory that treated poetry as a solution to religious problems. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm willing to stand by that. I think it's unquestionably true of uh, 19th century poetic theory, that there's a big discourse about how poetry should be doing the work of religion. And it's connected to sort of the progress of of biblical scholarship where the Bible is no longer received by everyone as God's dictation. That God is saying, hey, Moses, write this down. And then he recites Torah. Or, you know, an angel comes and whispers into the ear of St. Matthew what to write in his gospel. This is a traditional understanding, and if you go to the Louvre or the Uffizi, you're going to see a whole bunch of paintings of angels whispering into the ears of the evangelists. In the 19th century, well, in the 18th century, and and increasingly over the course of the 19th century, more and more people move away from this model of inspiration, and the model they move toward is to say that the Bible is inspired, yes, but it's not God's dictation. The, the Bible is inspired in the way that poetry is inspired. And this does things to Shakespeare's reputation. Meaning that, that you could look at Shakespeare and say, well, just, you know, forget about the plots. Just look at the language. That's what is important, the poetry. Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare wrote a lot of blank verse. And so you, someone like Barrett Browning, or even, you know, before Barrett Browning, someone like Charles Lamb would say that, when you put Shakespeare on stage, that really sort of waters down the beauty and importance of the poetry, that it's the sort of the theater of the mind that Shakespeare is so wonderfully 
powerful in in creating. And then other other people follow suit. Someone like Matthew Arnold Goethe. I mean, there's endless number of folks in the 19th century who, when they talk about Shakespeare, talk about Shakespeare as a poet, as of course he was. That is such an interesting parallel because you can get around the stuff that contradicts what you're what people were learning about science at that time by looking at the Bible that way, and you can also divorce. Shakespeare from the base body bits by, by exalting him as a, a poet of divine inspiration above being a playwright. But there were there Victorians, though, who disagreed with this whole canonization of Shakespeare? I mean, there were definitely Victorians and other people whom we could name in the 19th century who raised an eyebrow at it. Ralph Waldo Emerson is, is one. Like, he was very slow to come around. When he writes the essay on poetry that made Walt Whitman so very excited. Emerson says, you know, I've been flipping through this anthology of centuries of English poetry, and I don't see a single inspired bard. Like, that's amazing. Like, Shakespeare's in that anthology, right? He's got this ideal of poetry that's so exalted that no poet lives up to it. Uh, that's where the, the discourse about poetry came to. Or another... Uh, you know, prominent Shakespeare's skeptic is uh, Leo Tolstoy in Russia, where he's like, you know, rolling his eyes and smashing his head against his forehead in, in frustration at Shakespeare idolatry. Herman Melville has this wonderful quotation where he complains that, I want to get it right, he says that the absolute and unconditioned adoration of Shakespeare has grown to be part of our Anglo-Saxon superstitions. He's, he's just frustrated he was frustrated, among other things, because he was like, you know, I'm, I'm an American, right? I mean, he's, he's, he wanted to promote American literature. He wanted to see American literature promoted. And he was the idea that Shakespeare is God and no one can say anything against Shakespeare. This is Melville in the middle of the 19th century, you know, really frustrated and writing a book about a whale, and hoping people will like that too, right? Are you with me? Yeah, I love these. I love these iconoclasts. You know, these free thinkers banging their heads on their desks over Shakespeare. Um, and maybe this is a good time now to shift gears and talk about these devotional Shakespeare volumes. You just started to describe them earlier, but but what exactly were they, and who was writing them? A number of different people were writing them. I think I came to write this book. Because there were so many. Uh, there's a number of, of different ways that they did it, but it was quite frequent for a Victorian scholar to say, I want to put Shakespeare's verses in conversation with the scriptures and show how that you can move from one to the other and that they're doing the same thing. So one of the examples that I give in my book is W.H. Malcolm's Shakespeare and Holy Writ from 1881. He's got Shakespeare in a beautiful Gothic font at the top of the verso page and a holy writ on the top of the recto. And then he's got a, a series of headings like kindness and knowledge. And he gives little quotations that he's pulled totally out of context from the plays or from the Bible. And he shows how they each one corresponds with the other. And among other things, it, it clearly promotes the idea that Shakespeare and the Bible are saying the same thing. And so you, the way that kindness is treated in Timon of Athens, you will notice right away that it correlates to the way that it is spoken of in Proverbs. 
he does this. Many 19th century compilers of these books do this. Sometimes they organize them in different ways. Sometimes they'll sort of give a biblical text and interpolate little bits of Shakespeare. There are different ways of uh, organizing them. But what interested me is that there are so many. Uh, There's so many? So these are scholars and you just, just, in the course of your research, just stumbled on a whole cache of these or...? What? Yeah, so the the way that I got to this project in the first place is that I was working in the Special Collections Library at the University of Michigan back when I was a graduate student. And I was there to look for something completely different. But the Special Collections Librarian knew that I was doing research on 19th century religion. And so the Special Collections Librarian, she goes, I want to show you something. And so she she brought me a number of these volumes and I was like, boy, this is amazing. Oh, that is so wild. That You must have been so excited and worried someone else was going to come out with a book. You know, I was, because I was like, this is such amazing material. Surely someone else is going to do it. Because the thing about Shakespeare scholarship is that, as you, I don't need to tell you, it's like a sea, right? I mean, the, the, the amount of Shakespeare scholarship is really... It's a and, biblical and so flood. I, it's a biblical <laughs> flood, right? So I was... I was really anxious uh, that someone would. And, and the reason why I think no one did is that for generations, scholars have really been embarrassed about this kind of bardology, what George Bernard Shaw called bardolatry. Scholars have, have known that the 19th century had what seems to us an excessive investment in the religious truths that Shakespeare is articulating, but no one really knew what to do with it. I think scholars were embarrassed. It's interesting because when I first read this about this in your book, I thought that's really wild. But weren't they, weren't the scholars, in a very comparative literature style way, taking the Bible and putting it side by side with Shakespeare and picking out the influence of the Bible and of uh, Christian. Uh, doctrine on Shakespeare and how you see it in Shakespeare. But that isn't really what the scholars were doing. Well, it is in part what the scholars were doing. And again, I would, I would emphasize that they were scholars. Sometimes they were, you know, terrific scholars. When I point out how curious it is that they do this in their books, I don't wish to be understood to be making fun of them, or, or I don't hide the fact that it's a really wild thing to do from our perspective. But at the same time, they, they were very close scholars in some cases, but then sometimes the pairings that they give, just any undergraduate, if they said, look, this is just like this, this passage of Malvolio in Twelfth Night saying, there is no darkness, or I'm so sorry, Feste the Clown in Twelfth Night saying, there is no darkness but ignorance, where he's speaking to Malvolio. And someone like Malcolm says, look, this is just like the book of Proverbs, uh, that the soul be without knowledge it is not good. I mean, that's just, that's a crazy thing to write. And if, if my undergraduates wrote it, I would be like, you know, you're really going to go back to Twelfth Night, right? Because Feste <laughs> is sort of pulling stuff out of his rear and, and, and reciting it to Malvolio, who's locked in the, the lumber room. But yet, uh, part of the thing I want to acknowledge in, in the book is that scholars, we do take things out of context all the time, really. Good scholars do. I went and, and I listened recently, Barbara, to the interview that you gave with Michael Whitmore and Gail Kern-Pastor at the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic. Oh, about when, solace. Uh, about solace, yeah. And you were asking them, do we turn to Shakespeare for solace? It was a very Victorian question, <laughs> uh, although you were not probably 
consciously being Victorian, and asking. And part of what interested me about the exchange is that Whitmore's answer was also very Victorian, where he said, you know, when I think about Shakespeare in terms of solace, in terms of like real sort of existential, here we are in the midst of coronavirus pandemic, kind of soul-searching, he said, I think of short phrases, little phrases, that he freely acknowledged to take out of context. So I actually mm. wrote down what he said. He said, what I want to hear from them, the, the, the phrases from Shakespeare, are not the same as what they mean in the passage. And that's okay. So in a, in a, in a lot of ways, Whitmore's a great scholar, and he's, he's doing the same thing W.H. Malcolm is doing in the 1880s. He's saying, this gives me life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And thank you so much for listening to the show so closely. <laughs> and that yeah. really, that was so interesting because when he said that, I was picturing and listening to his, the phrases that give him solace and picturing a, a talisman. Yeah, you know? totally. Yes, totally. Just a, Again, fabulous scholar, yeah. right? So, so I, don't, I'm, I don't want to be understood as making fun of the Victorians for their religious approaches. I want to be understood as sort of honoring it while acknowledging that we as scholars also, and I, I suppose I'm chiefly thinking of sort of English department scholars such as myself, but, but I would extend that to other people who find, who find meaning in, in Shakespeare and other literary texts. Of course, we do that all the time. This is all really wonderful stuff, and it brings up so many of the issues that we talk about in Shakespeare scholarship, especially the, one of the central ones, the Shakespeare authorship controversy. And you, you draw a link between the Bible and that. And it involves this German book about the life of Jesus. So what, what am I even saying here? What was going on there? Tell us about this book and sketch that link out for us. Everyone knows, or everyone who listens to this podcast will know about the Shakespeare authorship controversies. Beginning in the 19th century, people ask themselves, you know, is the person who wrote this magnificent body of literature, actually William Shakespeare from Stratford. In a lot of ways, this too is a function of Victorian religious culture. Because one of the ways that biblical criticism in the 18th and 19th centuries really took hold and changed the ways that people were thinking about their religious life was asking the question about who wrote the various books of the Bible. And that, all that was really thrown into question in the first half of the 19th century. So the book that you mention, uh, David Friedrich Strauss's Das Leben Jesu, is a book that he writes in the 1830s. George Eliot translates it in 1846. So in the course of the 18th century, lots of scholars say the critique is made earlier, but the 18th century is when there's a scholarly consensus. Strauss is the one who applies it to the Christian scriptures. So I should clarify that in, in some ways, part of what the argument that I'm making is not an argument about the origins of these ideas. It's about the way that they take hold in the culture. Does this make sense? So that Coleridge well, I, I, was let me already ask there. You, let me ask you that. Yeah. So are you saying that because everyone's swimming in this soup of biblical of, of the equivalency of, of the Bible and, and Shakespeare. And since there's an authorship issue with these religious texts, there's must also be an authorship issue with Shakespeare? That, that it's not so much, it's more like concurrent, it's not so much that the whole Shakespeare issue has its roots in this? 
Again, it's a, it's a tricky argument because correlation is not the same as causation. But my point is, when does it happen? Right? It happens at the moment that a poet like Arthur Hugh Clough is bemoaning the disappearance of the evangelists, right? Where he's writing little poems like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Holy John vanished all and gone, right? Where, where he's saying, like, the hell, what just happened, right? We, we had this sort of long tradition in which we had faith in authorship, and now we no longer can. And that's when all of a sudden, not just in, in one place, but a number of people independently say, how do we know about Shakespeare? I don't think you have to say you know, one causes the other to say that this is what's in the air. The first major revision of the Bible to happen in the Anglophone world since King James happens in the 19th century, where they make this international committee, which turned into two committees, but both in, in North America and in, in Britain, and they want to revise the Bible. They make a new revised version of the Bible, which appears in 1881 and 1885, in which they want to have, they want to nail down the text in, in a better way, using modern sort of scholarly sources. And uh, one of the things that that new revised version makes very clear is that there are variants. You can't give a perfect version of the Book of Mark because when you look at the existing manuscripts, you, you find differences. This is clearly the same thing that happens in Shakespeare scholarship. And when you have people like F.J. Furnival's New Shakespeare Society, and, and they're going through trying to crunch the numbers, make it, nail down a perfect text, you can't make a perfect text of Hamlet. And it's a reality of scholarship. Yeah, it's a holy grail. But really, all of this that you're talking about sounds very familiar and, and very similar to what people are always saying about Shakespeare, which is that every generation reads it and takes the tools of the moment or the trends of the moment or the or the prevailing mindset of the moment and reads something different into it than people did in, in, in the past. We adapt it to our moment and our skills and, and our preoccupations. And you do seem to suggest that this is also a kind of deification of Shakespeare, that it's just something every generation does. We come back to the, to, to honoring him that way. So is, yeah. is that what we're saying, you think, in, with Shakespeare in the Victorian era? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, this the Victorian Shakespeare that I'm looking at is a very distinctively Victorian phenomenon. I'm interested in it, not least of all, because university departments of English get created at the end of the 19th century out of this atmosphere. It is interesting for me, not least of all, because, you know, when I think about how it is that I talk to undergraduates about Anglophone poetry for a living, you know, I'm, I'm deeply in debt to this Victorian ideal. And Shakespeare scholarship, Victorian Shakespeare scholarship, again, is like the ultimate instance of this. Shakespeare is the ultimate poet who Shakespeare did most to create the atmosphere in which English departments could arise. That's oh, very personal for you. It's personal, sure. Yeah. 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 People have known for years about Victorian, you know, what Shaw called bardolatry. And I, I guess my contribution is not, look, this is so, but I pick up the archive and I say, look, you know, it's, it's compelling in various ways. It's super interesting in various ways. And, and I'm, I'm not at all ashamed to embrace it as meaningful. 
You know, every time I think that I can't think about Shakespeare a different way, someone like you comes along and completely <laughs> rearranges my, my whole understanding. Thank you so much. It was really interesting talking with you. Thank you. It's nice of you to say so. I'm, I'm uh, honored to be on your show. Dr. Charles Laporte is an associate professor of English at the University of Washington. His book, The Victorian Cult of Shakespeare, Bardology in the 19th Century, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. His previous book, Victorian Poets and the Changing Bible, was named Best First Book in Victorian Studies by the Northeast Victorian Studies Association in 2011. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, I Am No Thing to Thank God On, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer, with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. As always, if you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcast Store. That's the best way to let people know what we're doing. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director, Michael Whitmore.